they really do understand what wellness is. Wellness is you work, but you don't kill yourself to do it. You grab a glass of wine, you take a breath, and you enjoy the beauty. They do have this appreciation of beauty and wellness. Like they build beautiful things. Even if they're dirt poor, their homes are beautiful. The landscaping is beautiful. They take care of their bodies. There's just such an appreciation of taking care of yourself, being well, living well, looking lovely, and not in a superficial way, in a meaningful way. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. This podcast centers Black women and also living abroad as a pathway to wellness. Wellness in all of its forms, financial, professional, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Welcome to the show and welcome back if you're returning. Thank you so much. I am Christine Job, the host of Flourish in the Foreign and a Black American expat living and thriving here in Barcelona. Thank you all so much for tuning in. You guys are the best audience one could ever ask for. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of you and I got an incredible amount of feedback about last week's episode especially and I've decided to do something really special for you and I hope super helpful for all of my listeners who are in particularly very interested in managing their finances abroad. So stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear something I've put together for all of you. As I said before, I am the host, creator, producer, and everythinger of this here podcast. And this podcast truly is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. And that is why I'm asking you all to please support this podcast. There are five ways for you to support Flourish in the Foreign. One, become a Patreon supporter of Flourish in the Foreign by going to www.patreon.com slash flourishforeign. There you can select whichever tier you feel most comfortable. And some of the benefits of becoming a Patreon supporter range from community access, bonus episodes, live Q&A replays, and monthly chats with me. So become a Patreon supporter today. Speaking of live Q&As, we just had an amazing live Q&A with Jamila. And this Sunday, we have another great live Q&A with Adma. If you guys remember, she talked about her journey from London to Toronto. So if you want to attend the live Q&As, which are on Sundays, please be sure to sign up for the Flourish in the Foreign newsletter. And I'll be sending out all the event details via the newsletter. I want to shout out Cynthia. Thank you, Cynthia, for being a great Patreon supporter and upping your pledge to support Flourish in the Foreign. I appreciate you. So thank you so much. And just to let you guys know, you can become a Patreon supporter at any level that's comfortable for you. You can always edit your pledge. And I appreciate just your support and your commitment to this work. The second way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is by Cash App. You can Cash App the podcast at dollar sign Flourish Foreign. And Cash App is like a tip jar. 
So if you're listening to an episode that really moves you, if you hear a story that's just incredible and you're like, I just want to contribute and maybe not in a consistent monthly way, this is the perfect way for you. So please definitely cash out the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Megan and Lauren for cash apping the podcast. Thank you so, so much. I just appreciate your support. So thank you. And if you're looking for another way to contribute to the podcast monetarily, definitely DM me. I've had several people reach out because they don't necessarily have Cash App and they have contributed to the podcast and I greatly appreciate that. And a special shout out to Karen. Thank you, Karen, so much for contributing to the podcast, for supporting this podcast. It means so much to me. So thank you. The third way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is by placing an ad within the podcast or sponsoring an entire episode of the podcast. If you're interested in getting your organization and your business in front of an incredible audience of ambitious, educated, internationally minded women, go ahead to the Flourish in the Foreign website www.flourishintheforeign.com slash contact and drop me a line. I'll send you over the rate sheet and we will chat. The fourth way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is by sharing this podcast. It is so important. I say it all the time, but it truly is so important to share the podcast across your own social media, across your own network, in your own email news list or your listserv or whatever you have access to because your personal recommendation is worth gold and I appreciate you. Please do continue sharing the podcast across social media. Tag the podcast at Flourish Foreign. The fifth way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is, of course, by subscribing to the podcast, giving the podcast five stars, and leaving a review. I really enjoy reading the reviews. They are so, so sweet, and I'm always incredibly humbled to hear what you all think of the podcast. So please continue writing reviews for the podcast. I really appreciate it, and it also helps people find the podcast. All right, I just gave you all five different ways to support this podcast, and I hope you have chosen at least one way to support Flourish in the Foreign today. So this next message is brought to you by the Democrats Abroad Global Black Caucus. They've asked me to share this message with all of you Americans who are currently living abroad. It is not too late for Americans who live abroad to request their absentee ballots, but the deadlines are quickly approaching. Visit the nonpartisan website, votefromabroad.org, now to complete your ballot request form and return it to your local election office in the USA. It only takes a few minutes. If you are concerned that you may not have enough time to return your ballot to your local election authority before the deadline, you can also vote immediately by the backup ballot known as a Federal Write-In Absentee Ballot, or FWAB. In addition, trained volunteers from Democrats Abroad are available on Zoom every Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday until the election to offer one-on-one help and answer any questions about voting from abroad in real time. You can get more info on this by going to www.democratsabroad.org slash global underscore voter underscore assistance. Okay, now on to the next story. This next story features Kelly Ann, 
And Kellyanne's story is so interesting because of the way she went abroad and how she was able to take her work, her career, and her profession abroad. I think it'll be really fascinating for some of you that's trying to figure out how do I take what I love to do abroad. Also, Kelly Ann is one of the hosts of the Successful Black Women Summit that is happening this week. And this event is going to be spectacular to say the least. But I'm going to let her tell you all about it. I am Kelly Ann. I am 38 years old. I currently live in Washington, D.C. My hometown is a place called Plattsburgh, New York. It's a town no one has ever heard of. It is closest to two major cities. Well, kind of. One is Montreal, Canada, and the other is Burlington, Vermont. And I was 30 years old when I left America and I lived in Europe for five years until I was about 35, 36. I don't think I would have ever maybe lived abroad except for a few things. One, I have a mother who is originally raised in Europe. So she was from a little island called Dominica and immigrated to London in her young childhood, about nine years old. And then she met my father, who's from the deep south of Louisiana, who was there with the military. And they met while he was stationed overseas and got married. And then he came back to the States. She came with him. I was born. My brother was born while they were in London. So I was raised with an international mom and an American father. And so at a very young age, my mom's culture very much influenced my childhood. And my mother came to the States in her 30s. So she really kind of raised us with a very international perspective. We were able to go back to London often, at least a couple of times as a, as children. So that really shaped me and really shaped kind of my worldview and made me fall in love with travel at a very early age, even though I will say we were very poor. So it wasn't that we lived this life of riches or anything like that. It was basically because my grandmother was in England and she would send for us to come back home and visit. And so I was very, very, very lucky. I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. So one of the interesting things about my childhood is that I grew up surrounded by whiteness and the most times I would see blackness actually is when I would go to London and I would see my family. My mom comes from a very large family. She's actually one of 16. And so when we would go home, we'd be just surrounded by blackness and black culture and Caribbean culture. And then when I would come back to the States, I would be surrounded by white culture where it was just usually just my little brown face and a, a sea of whiteness. So that was kind of a unique aspect of my childhood that shaped me. My university experiences were that I went to a local college. I didn't go away for college. I went in my hometown for undergrad. I went to a university called Plattsburgh State University and did my undergrad there. I studied psychology, stayed living at home and <laughs> travel abroad but was able again to travel a lot during college because I had family that lived overseas, had a lot of international friends that traveled abroad and did study abroad, but I never did. And then for graduate school, I studied social work and criminal justice. 
and went to the University of Albany, which is still in the state of New York. I did a dual master's program. Didn't travel then either, not for university or education, but traveled a lot back and forth to Europe and decided during that time that I wanted to do a career focused in social justice and particularly criminal justice and prison social work was what I initially wanted to do. I asked Kelly how her career progressed once she graduated university. I started my career in social work and I wanted to do a lot in the field, like I said, of social justice and a lot with helping particularly Black Americans. And then it got narrowed down some more in, in school, Black men. And so when I was learning, I figured where were Black men most struggling and what was the literature kind of telling me? And it was saying, oh, they're struggling and mostly disproportionately incarcerated. And so it became clear to me that that's where I wanted to go and put my energy and efforts toward helping Black men in prison. And so my first job right out of college was working in a maximum men's security prison. I had no desire to go back to my rural hometown at all, but I ended back up there. <laughs> so I ended up back in Plattsburgh, New York, working in the largest maximum men's security prison in the state uh, where I was the only Black employee. There was one other woman there who was biracial who soon quit after I arrived. We probably overlapped by maybe a year. And I worked there for about three years running a day treatment program, but I mostly ran the solitary confinement or what's called the SHU unit, the solitary housing unit for about two years. And that was a program I ran that took care of the quote unquote, worst behave inmates of New York state and was supposed to rehab them. And it was predominantly men of color and doing group therapy with them, which I enjoyed the experience of working with the inmates, but found it one of the most soul-crushing experiences of working in a prison system for a variety of reasons. <laughs> Some very obvious, I think, to anyone listening as to why. I was very naive. I was only 24 years old. And I tried to balance that by teaching African-American studies in my hometown university where I went for my undergrad. So I did that for a while. I, it became intolerable. And I had an extreme case of burnout, being a young Black woman, being the only Black employee working in this very, very traumatic environment. And so I then started working with veterans. And a lot of it was just clinical work and helping people. It was on my mind that I needed to get out, that I was not well and very traumatized and very burned out. And I need to do something different. And a lot of things just kind of fell into my lap in a series of bizarre coincidences. I started applying like crazy. I worked for the government and I started applying like crazy to work overseas and nothing was happening. There's a ton of jobs and a lot of opportunities to work overseas, but I wasn't getting any of them. I was qualified for the jobs, but I wasn't even making the first round to be considered. And I kind of gave up on that as an option but I knew I needed to just get out of the States for a while. I needed a break. And so on a whim, started Googling social working abroad. And I applied for a job that didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and then I got a random email that said, hey, 
do you want to work here? And I didn't even recognize the name of it or the job title. But when I Googled where it was, it said Cambridge, England. And I said, I don't care what it is. I'm going to take that job because I've already at this point worked in prisons. I've worked with veterans. I have done some really hard social work jobs and I'm exhausted and need to do something different. And I've always loved Europe and I've grown up really connected to Europe. So this is a sign. Let me take advantage of this. So now that Kelly had decided to move to England, I asked her, how did she prepare to move? I accept the position and I immediately go into preparation mode. And there were a couple of things. You have your visa process. I was pretty lucky. I connected with a contractor. And one of the great things about going abroad when you do it through a contractor is they do help you with a lot of the logistics. They help you work your visa process. They help you connect to different aspects to help you get to the country that you need to go to. One of the most amazing things that I was able to do that I recommend to people is if you can, is I was able to get what's called a relocation agent. And that person was a godsend. <laughs> she helped make the transition seamless. So I worked on my visa and did all those other things, but she really helped me find a place to stay. She helped me mail my stuff anything that I need to bring over, like clothes, things like that. She helped make sure that anything I needed was delivered to the house. So she did some shopping locally in England so that things could be delivered to my flat so that I had, you know, plates and cups and knives, things that we'll need when you get there were already there for me. And so that was being taken care of at the same time that I was worrying about what do I do with my apartment full of stuff that I have that I need to get rid of. And I can't tell you how freeing it was for me emotionally, the process of letting go of all the things that I had and the kind of psychological release it was of going through my stuff. I sold everything <laughs> when I was going overseas. And for me, it was just about what that represented, that I was starting a new chapter, that I was leaving behind all the other things that didn't serve me anymore. And I was starting anew. And so I sold my furniture. I sold everything that wasn't like my clothes and my jewelry and things that were sentimental. I sold everything. And some things were just like pure coincidence or the universe or God, whatever you subscribe to. But I had just bought a car like the year before. And then I took the job and I got a piece of mail like two weeks later saying, Hey, this car is so popular, we want to buy it back from you. And they bought my car back and then some money on top of it. So I got back what I owed and like I think like $500 extra. I sold all my furniture, my car went, and I had never felt freer than when I said yes to letting go. I told my boss, I said, you know, I am going to England and this is what they're paying me and this is where I'm going and this is the work I'm doing because I, I got they finally explained to me what the job was, which was a break from the grinding clinical work I was doing. And my boss turned to me and he said, I couldn't be happier for you. You deserve better. And I'm glad you're getting it. And that to me was just another confirmation that this was all the right thing for me to be doing. 
I asked Kelly to describe to me the day that she left the United States and how she was feeling. What were the thoughts going through her head as she landed in England, not to visit, but to live? Like the day of moving, I remember my family came over and it was, I think, more emotional for them than it was for me, for friends and family. I think for some people, and I think one of the things people don't realize when you get ready to go and you take that step is that I had been a rock for a lot of people in my life and I had taken care of everybody but me in my life. And so I think some people really felt like I was abandoning them. And it was really hard on some of the people in my life when I said, hey, I'm excited. I'm moving across the world to another place, another country, and I'm going to be five hours in time difference, but I'm going away. And I don't know when I'm coming back. I, I really left it open-ended. I mean, for some people just to calm their anxiety, I said, I'm, I'm going to come back. But I really, in my heart, knew if I could, I didn't know when I was ever going to come back to the States if I could help it. And my mom was okay with it, but really she knew it was good for me. So she took it well. My parents took it well, but they were really sad, but they knew it was the right thing for me. And they weren't so worried because my mom's from England. So it wasn't a big deal. My older brother, he was secretly really heartbroken because we were very close. And so us all going together to the airport, I went with my family and I knew that it was really hard for them, but I was just so excited. I had friends that kind of really were mixed about it. And it showed in the years to come that some people just didn't keep in touch with me as much. And I only really heard from them when I came home, but it was a very kind of emotional goodbye for some people. But for me, the overwhelming feeling I had was excitement. And I will tell you when I got on the plane and I landed in England and I stepped off that plane, I was home. That was the feeling I felt when I got off the plane. I had finally come home. And because I had that relocation agent, I had someone there to pick me up. I had someone there to drive me directly to my flat. I got into my flat. My clothes I'd sent ahead were already there. And all I really had to do was unpack my clothes. I had a furnished flat and really kind of start making myself to home. And I never felt any different than that feeling when I got off the plane. I felt at home the entire time I was living in Cambridge, England. I asked Kelly to describe to me her first year living and working in England. So there were adjustments, <laughs> some uh, pleasant and otherwise. It was overall an amazing, beautiful experience my first year living abroad. Uh, I'll start with some of the quirky things, as I like to say. There were like unexpected taxes that they don't tell you about when you live abroad. Like I didn't know you had to pay a TV tax. And so I had gotten like this extra bill because I'd forgotten to pay for it. So I was like, what? You got to pay to just own a TV? No, that's not a thing. It's totally a thing in England. Pay your TV tax. And driving was fun. Learning to drive on the other side of the road was fun. But those things are kind of met with like a sense of excitement about the challenge that it was to kind of learn to drive and mastering that. And I took to it with kind of that spirit of adventure. Some things I took to less with the spirit of adventure is in England, when there's any kind of a traffic accident, they just shut everything down and you just sit in traffic for sometimes hours waiting for them to like 
clear the scene of an accident and you just sit there. And as an American, you're like, is this real? Like, this can't be a thing. Like, you just, no, like you move the car and we keep going. Like, you don't just sit there for two hours. Oh, no, you sit there. The funny thing that you learn really quickly is like you go to the bathroom before you drive home because your 15 minute commute home can quickly become an hour and a half to two hour commute with you standing still in a car for like an hour. And so that initially drove me nuts the first year. And then I just learned to embrace it, pee before I get on the road and then blare like Britney Spears or, you know, little Kim or some other really obnoxious kind of music to also tick off my fellow people in line or make them smile as we were at stock still traffic to kind of just make light of the fact that it's just ridiculous. So those are some of the like quirks that drove me nuts about England that I just had to get over and embrace. But the things that overall I loved about being in England was the kind of slower pace, although England is, is a much more westernized country. And I think Cambridge is a go-go-go city. England's a go-go-go country. But it still understood the concept of taking a break and resting and enjoying the little things. And so I would I walked a lot more than I did in the States. I wrote a lot more. I was a lot more creative. I felt a lot more at peace. And I felt like this weight off my shoulders that I didn't realize how much of it I had been carrying living in America and living that first year, so much pressure came off of me that I didn't even realize I had on me that maybe some of it I placed on myself. And a lot of it's just placed on you just by being a black woman, making it day to day in America. And so it was such a joy to be able to just wander England and take it all in and travel. That was just such a a pleasure. And I loved most every minute of my first year in England. I was curious to know what were some of the differences or quirks about the English work culture? I think the work culture in England, while it's still very highly productive, they work a lot of hours like Americans do. It still has more rest breaks built into it. You know, they get a cuppa, they like their tea they relax more and there's just not as much of them taking themselves seriously as Americans do. Americans truly do live to work. And I find Europeans, even in England, which definitely mirrors a lot of American culture, they still have a lot of working to live. They have a lot more time off than American culture has. And they have a lot more of a relaxing approach to their work. And I found that even though I worked really hard in England, I still had a lot more balance. I took work home a lot less. I didn't bring work home hardly ever. That to me was such a difference. And I found that such a breath of fresh air for me as like a workaholic. I'm always going to work because I usually do work that I find meaningful. And so it's always harder for me to disconnect and find that line, it was so healing for me to kind of take a step back and and find the breaks and not bring it home with me. I asked Kelly to describe to me her experience being a Black American woman in England. 
I really enjoyed being a black woman in England. I, I think there is a lot of, in Europe, there is a distinction between being black and being a black American. So there is nuance in being a black American versus being a black woman. There is something about being a black American that is just really embraced in England and really in Europe for the most part has been my experience. I can't speak for everybody's, but for my personal experience, it has been really nice. Like it's been easy. I have had only good experiences in England. And I, that's one of the things that I immediately realized. I, you know, I tell people jokingly, like in America, I'm probably like a six on the look scale. In England, I'm an eight. Everybody was just like, you're so attractive and not in a creepy fetish way. I, I want to be clear about that, but in a really kind of like, wow, how, you're so attractive. And this is men and women. And just like they celebrate American culture and American black culture. They are so in love with black culture in an appropriate context. They really love soul music. They grow up on it. They revere quality and all the things that were exploited. I feel like in American culture that blacks gave Americans, British people appropriately love it. Like I would go to these clubs, these jazz clubs, and they would play old Motown songs and you would see 16 year olds who knew who Sam Cooke was and they knew all the words to Sam Cooke's songs. And it was like, of course we know who Sam Cooke was. He's amazing. He wrote this great music and they would know things like that because that was like, that's art to them. And black American culture deserves to be revered for the genius that it was. And so as a black woman, you're a part of that culture that they so admire and have seen and have grown up with. And so that I feel like spills into your everyday experience there. I found virtually no experience of racism the way I experienced it in the States. Now, I do believe that there are problems with African Black people in Europe. I will never deny that because I think that is a problem. I think particularly if you are a Muslim and you are a black African, there is definitely prejudice that exists there. But for my personal experience, I never experienced it. I never felt stared at unless it was like the way people stare at people if they think they're attractive or if they heard my accent. Oftentimes people like young white European girls mostly would be like, I love your accent. I think you're pretty that kind of thing more than it was like exploitive or concerning or made you feel uncomfortable. I, I never really either noticed my race at all. Like I would just wander the streets and be kind of one of the crowd or it was more positive if anybody noticed me. So I had mostly positive experiences and race was not really a factor at all. Nine, 90% of the time, that I was wandering around. It wasn't really in my mind. And that in itself was a unique experience for me. Of course, as you all know, I had to ask Kelly what the dating scene was like in England, specifically in Cambridge and in London. Lovely. A lot easier than it was in the States. I found European men much more respectful and much more communicative. European men to me 
understood the concept of needing to talk before expecting anything in return. Yeah, it's normal to want to get coffee, to talk on the phone, to expect a level of socialization before an expectation of anything more. And in America, that's not always the case. Or it's, well, we texted a couple of times, so <laughs> shouldn't there be more? I'm somebody who craves true connection with people. That's just who I am. I, I need to know you. I need to talk about really deep things. And I would go to a pub and I would have that conversation just randomly with anybody, frankly, like not even in a dating situation. But in a dating situation, that was like an expectation. Well, yeah, like let's have a conversation about what's going on or what you think about this or what's your story? Where are you from? What was your life like in America? Or what's this about? For me, that made dating a joy. And I loved every second of it. I loved that piece of getting to know someone and having them get to know me and not feeling pressure in any way. I really enjoyed that. I just found it much more social, much more enjoyable. I found that people actually really dated, which was kind of nice. I feel like our culture has lost that. There is an art to dating. And I, I feel like Americans are losing that to a degree that we don't really date anymore. And I found that was a lot easier to do in England. I was interested to know if there was a vibrant Black community in Cambridge. There definitely was a Black community in Cambridge and otherwise. I spent a lot of my time between Cambridge and London because you can really get between the two pretty easily. And there's like Black Brit and then there's Africans and there's West Indians. And those are, and that the distinction being that you're immigrated from there directly, like you're Caribbean, you're first gen, like you're not English, and then you're African just directly from an African country. And then a Black Brit is somebody who could be descended from them, like a first generation from Africa, like your parents came here from Africa. So that's how the different identities came together. And there were different sections of different parts of both Cambridge and London that are dedicated to those identities. And so it's a vibrant, particularly in London, not so much in Cambridge, it's a little smaller, but both had vibrant communities where you could get, you know, Caribbean food and African food and different things like that. Also your hair done, which I did <laughs> several times while I was there. And so they do have those communities and black identity is strong there. And I think for me, I would go down to a lot of the West Indian communities because that's where my mom is from. And I had a little more of a like connection. There would be festivals as well. They would have the Caribbean carnival. And for me, like when I go with my cousins and different things, we would more so engage with the culture then. So I got to have a unique experience of kind of integrating into the British Caribbean culture while I lived in England. I lived in England for a little over two years and I would have not left <laughs> except for there was a screw up with my contract and the tax man cometh and they told me that I would have to pay some like ridiculously high taxes if I stayed in England. And at that exact moment, a friend of mine who was living in England had moved to Italy and she said, hey, do you wanna move to Italy and do this job that was related to social work and it paid more money and the cost of living was 
ridiculously lower and there was no tax issues. And I said, oh, there's no taxes at all in Italy. And so I didn't really have a choice and it broke my heart, but I said, you know what? I want to stay living abroad. So I need to move to Italy. And so that's what prompted me to move to Italy was that I needed to get out of England because if I had paid the taxes that I owed, it was costing me like thousands of thousands of dollars. And I was going to have to really cut a lot of things and move. And I figured I would go to Italy for a little bit and figure it all out and see if I could come back to England. Wow. So from England now to Italy, I asked Kelly, what was her experience moving from England to Italy and how she felt about that move? So that was a very (laughs) different experience. When I was getting ready to move to Italy, leaving England and moving to Italy was a different experience because leaving England behind, you know, I told you like that was like coming home. And it was a heartbreak for me to leave England. I will not lie. I was heartbroken. And so coming to Italy was like, I talk about living abroad as Europe being the love of my life. I really do believe that living abroad has been the love of my life and living in Europe particularly has been the love of my life. And so for me, it was like having a really bad divorce or really bad breakup and having to move. So I was making the best of it, but I really wasn't thrilled about moving to Italy. I had been on vacation in Italy and Italy's gorgeous, but I was just emotionally sad about it because I just loved England so much. And so packing up and moving and and having all those things. It was a great opportunity. So when I got on the plane to Italy and I landed, I was moving to this place called Sicile, which is about 50 minutes north of Venice, Italy. This most gorgeous, gorgeous, it's probably one of the most beautiful places in all of Italy, honestly. It's at the base of the Swiss or Italian Alps that turned into the Swiss Alps. Gorgeous town. I arrived there brokenhearted though. And so I had great people who took me in and were like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I promise you. And so I went from this bustling city that Cambridge is vibrant and in some ways was more advanced at the time than America and where I was from in America at least. And then I come to this rural Italian town that is gorgeous. You couldn't envision anything more beautiful, but it's very much what you see in the movies of like a very rural, very quaint, small town. And I start kind of my life there and I'm like, what is this going to be like? I asked Kelly to describe to me her first year living and working in Italy. The first year in Italy started out rocky and ended up okay. Honestly, like I grew a lot because it started out from this place of heartbreak. I I got this amazing, cute little apartment and I started new. There's several things about Italy that is even more quirky than you can imagine. One, there's a language barrier. So I had to learn to start gearing up for Italian. I was taking Italian classes and trying to learn the basics of how to get around because I'm now in this little rural town where majority of the people do not speak English at all. And so it's like, well, it's on me to learn Italian. And so some of the things I'm learning are really fun things like 
I'm paying for my light bill in a cigarette shop, in a gambling shop. Okay. And that's like one of the quirks about Italy. The the way that you, like I had to learn to drive standard because it was the only car available. And these adorable women who run the car dealership were like, no, no, no. They spoke English and they're like, no, no, no. You're going to get this car. We're just going to teach you how to drive standard. And I had learned standard years ago, but it's been like a decade or more since I've driven a stick or manual. And they're like, no, no, it's fine. And this is like the Italian culture. Like they just go, they're just so cavalier. Like it's fine. We take you to a parking lot. You drive stick. We're good. And I was just like, okay. And so they took me to this parking lot and I drove stick and I got it right like three times in a row. And that was like the test with which I could then purchase this car and have a standard vehicle. And God bless them and me, how I survived for like the first 60 days driving standard. Not really, because I learned it in a parking lot in like 20 minutes. And that was like, okay, you're good. So we'll just send you off about your business. Getting anything. It took a month to get cable, a month to get internet, more so than cable. I never really got cable, but like a month to get the basic conveniences, like a phone that worked with like internet so I could keep in touch with friends and family. And you try to call them on the phone to come into an appointment and they would be like, Dumani. And Dumani means like tomorrow, which is code for never. And they would cancel their appointment on you with like no notice. And you have to take a day off of work and they never show up. And then they'd be like, Dumani, we'll see. It would drive me bonkers for someone who was like a type A and recovery person. And so those were the things that drove me nuts about Italy. The first month, maybe 90 days, honestly, I was there. I was like, oh my God, I'm going home. That's it. That's it. I'm going back to America. I I can't, I mean, America, I didn't want to be in America, but it can't be worse than Italy. I'm out of here. And then slowly but surely, I started easing into what was beautiful about the country. And there were a lot of things that were beautiful about it. I lived next door to the little spa and it was ridiculously cheap in Italy. And so these lovely, lovely Italian women, I would get my nails done and they would pamper me. And the Italians understand what it's like to take care of yourself in all the ways that are meaningful. They really do understand what wellness is. Wellness is like you work, but you don't kill yourself to do it. You grab a glass of wine, you take a breath. And you enjoy the beauty. They do have this appreciation of beauty and wellness. Like they build beautiful things. Even if they're dirt poor, their homes are beautiful. The landscaping is beautiful. They take care of their bodies. Like there's just such an appreciation of taking care of yourself, being well, living well, looking lovely, and not in a superficial way, in a meaningful way. And so I started seeing that. I made fantastic friends. I had a male friend that was in so many ways a best friend. And he saw that I was struggling and he was just like determined to show me how beautiful Italy could be. And he would just totally rescue me from my depression funk of being like, what is this place that I have to go to like the shady tobacco guy to pay my light bill? And oh yeah, they cut my lights off for no reason again this month because of some weirdness. And he would take me to dinner and he would show me 
the beauty of Italy. And we would take these drives up into the mountains and there would be these beautiful farmhouses that would do these traditional meals that would look out into the cliffs. And you could see as far as I could see the most beautiful views you've ever seen in your life of the country and people who would go beyond bend over backwards to give you the most incredible experiences of like, come see my home. I'll show you everything. Come see where we make our wine and the grapes that make them and the pride that they had in doing that. And come see how we make our bread right from the wheat that we actually cultivate to like how we grind it. All those things that went into making Italy, Italy. And so I had such an appreciation for Italian culture and how they live their lives and the simplicity of how they did it. And so my life started to change as I chilled out. Some things never got easier. I still got annoyed by some of the slowness, but the fact that my day ended normal on the dot, I never stayed late from work. And I started coming home, dropping my stuff off, getting in my little like sandals and grabbing a book and meeting my friends in the piazza and talking about life and really connecting and having a spritz. And then after we have our spritz, we'd go to dinner. We'd walk to another place and talk and have dinner. And then we'd walk another place and look at like these little waterfalls we had in our town and talk some more about real things and connecting about what's going on in our lives and what's going on in the world and what's going on in our future. And then we would go hiking on the weekends and we would travel. I traveled everywhere you can imagine for so cheap. My life changed so radically and I got so much calmer living in Italy. It really broke something in me that I didn't realize I had of this need to always be busy, this need to get things done, this drive for deadlines that was killing me. And so it was such an exercise in wellness after I got over that need to have everything perfect and and done in such an order that I demanded it, that I saw the benefits of letting go and how healthy that was for me. I wanted to know what had been Kelly's experience being a Black American woman in Italy. That was really unique because I was in Northern Italy and there's a huge difference between Northern Italians and Southern Italians. So let me start by saying that. and. In Northern Italy, there is this culture that men and women don't really chit-chat. So that's a weird thing. There's no chit-chatting. It's like you're either in a relationship or not. And I say this to contextualize being a Black American because there were several Black women that were African that were actually there's a, were prostitutes. And so this would become a problem that Italian men, if they didn't know you were American, would assume you might be a prostitute. And then if you opened your mouth, they would go, oh, Americana. And then it would be like a whole different vibe to you. I have not as much prominent African features. So most men just didn't really engage with me. And most women were okay toward me. I didn't find the Italians on a whole to be super friendly. Some of them were, but they were older. 
a lot of the ones like in my peer group, it was kind of a mix. The Southern Italians was a total different vibe. They were very friendly, very engaging, very much the stereotypical, like the people expect from Italians. The Northern Italians were a little bit mixed. I also lived in a very kind of like, quote unquote, upper middle class town. And so I think that had an impact in how people reacted to me. And I was a single woman. And there's something about single women that Northern Italians had a really tough time figuring out. And then to be a single black woman, they were like, I don't even know what to do with you. Like, how do we categorize this? Where's your man? And so that was weird. I did a lot better. Funnily enough, I had a friend that I was really close with. He was like my best friend there. And when we were together, I had no problems making friends with the Italians because they could then figure, they just assumed that we were together as a couple. And then it became very easy to interact with Italians and they were super friendly and warm. But when I was by myself going places, they found it really odd to interact with a single black woman. It was just this weird thing. A question that I've gotten from the audience is about integration and assimilation. And so I asked Kelly, how well did she integrate into English and then Italian culture if she found assimilation in both countries to be easy? I integrated pretty easily with in both countries, flawlessly in England, I would say, because one, it's English speaking. And so you can get out there and do different things and, and easily find like your interests and your people. And I had family there, I started like in engaging in groups and finding different things that I was interested in and, and going to meetups. And I, you know, love, for example, musical theater, and I would go to theater groups and all kinds of things, right? So that was very easy to integrate with the culture there and find my own people and find my space and feel at home. Because it's just a, a matter of the internet and will and showing up at places and finding friends and people and making friends at work. So that was really easy. In Italy, it took a little bit more energy, but not a ton. But I really wanted to make an effort to embrace the community I was in of Italy and yet still have some inner connection to the Americans that I did work with. So I tried to balance both. And so that took a little more effort. I was able to do that and reach to people internationally and build community with friends locally who could take me to like cool little vineyards and different places like that, that were like little kept secrets. And so it took a little more energy to do that, but I was able to, by really kind of like putting myself out there, which was hard and was much harder in Italy than in England. Kelly's experience abroad came to an end and she had to begin her repatriation journey. And I asked Kelly to describe what prompted her move back to the United States. So I was in Italy for three years and I decided to come back to the States because I had sick parents and I needed to come home. My parents were got really, really ill about my fourth year in Italy. They both nearly died in the same month. And I knew that it was kind of time to come and be closer to them because I had to come home from Italy for about six to eight weeks, maybe, and care for them. And I knew that the level of care that they needed at that point, I couldn't be overseas and do that. I knew that was way, way too much to hold a job and be over there. And so I came back about two years ago and it did work out because since that time I have had to work 
remotely from my hometown to care for my parents at different points. And so that was really the factor of the decision to come back. Otherwise, I know I would not have come back to the States. So the transition has been hard to come back because I'm back in the States, I'm back at work, and it's back to like grind, 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 grind. And even though I've been able to have flexibility in my job, I'm very lucky that I can remote work. When you return to the States, what they don't tell you is you get culture shock when you're back. And I'm definitely still not fully adjusted two years out to being back in America. The culture shock of coming back to this country is I didn't realize how angry I was when I left it. And I left this country in 2013. Let me be clear, it's not tied to like politics. I just didn't realize how much anger and frustration and how unwell I was when I left. And so I had been gone and I had been on this journey of wellness and healing from 2013 to 2018. And when I came back, that feeling that I, I had when I stepped foot off the plane in England is the inverse of the feeling that I had when I stepped foot off the plane in America. Everything that I kind of had felt about my experiences before I left the country came rushing back. And while I'm a lot better, I think like I've healed still a lot of parts of myself. I, I don't want to say that nothing changed because things have changed. That part is also jarring. Like I'm a different person. And so I have changed. Some of the changes in me makes me even more at odds with our culture than I was before. I, I never was one for the way that we work in America, but I'm even more so against the way we work in our culture. I really don't like the way that we live to work and we work these crazy hours and we make these false demands on ourselves to get things done. I really hate that about our culture. I hate that we have to really kind of shrink parts of ourselves to kind of fit these molds that we put on ourselves and these definitions of what it means to be black, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be you know, feminine, whatever those words are, that we really have these harsh definitions in America that I don't really find in Europe, particularly in England. In Italy, there is some of that, particularly with femininity and being a woman. But in Europe as a whole, it's a little more freer and you can kind of have space to define yourself and the concept of space. We don't have that in America. And so those things are very kind of jarring. And I didn't realize how much of a struggle that would be to kind of redefine that. America's obsession with money, there isn't really that much of that in Europe, especially not Italy, but even in England where it, it is a higher cost country, it's very expensive to live in England, but the obsession with money isn't there. In America, it's like everything costs so much money and you're just like, this is ridiculous. So. That, that has been a really kind of a struggle for me and adjusting to that has been difficult and trying to find some semblance of balance or appropriate work-life integration has been a struggle. And this is from someone like, I'm a burnout expert. So that's what I specialize in clinically. <laughs> and I've had to really work a lot harder than I ever have had to, to practice what I preach just because of being in this environment. And I don't find Americans have a lot of joy. And I don't think anybody is high on joy in 2020. <laughs> but I do think that 
Europeans have a foundation of life that sets them up for more moments of, of little sparks of happiness, whether it's a good meal <laughs> for, for an hour than Americans do with their McDonald's, right? Like, I think that we don't have those foundational moments of wellness built into our lives to give us little, little hits of joy and happiness. And so the repatriation process has been really difficult. And that those are things outside of even touching upon what's going on politically, what's going on socially with race in this country. I mean, that that's just something that would happen no matter what the year is. But then you add those pieces onto it and it's been a, a difficult adjustment. I asked Kelly, as a burnout expert, to describe exactly what is burnout. It is a status of being that happens when there is simply more being asked of you than you can give. So what does that look like then, right? Like it's perceived demands versus resources. And so what does that end up looking like? It is characterized by state of exhaustion. It's physical and emotional exhaustion characterized by like cynicism and hopelessness. And for me, when I talk about burnout and what it looks like to me is a series of self-betrayals is how I talk about it to people because I talk about burnout in the context of it's what happens when we don't stand up for ourselves and those demands versus resources, like all the ways that we allow the things that matter to us, we push them by the wayside and say yes to things that we know we should be saying yes to. Like I say to people, like if you have a partner and you say like, it's important that I get home and I, I connect with my partner and I'm not going to work past six o'clock because I need to get home and be with that person. And then you're consistently staying to work till seven o'clock. That's a betrayal. And that's going to lead you to burnout in no time at all. If you say that, you know, I'm going to be the type of person that's going to stand up to my boss when they're asking me to do something that I don't feel is appropriate or I feel is just pushing my boundaries, that is going to lead you to betrayal. It's demanding more from you than you know in yourself to be correct or in your resources to give. And so people end up in that situation really quickly when they are not living in line with like what's important to them and they're doing things consistently that are not in line with their ethics or their morals or their values. And then they end up in that state of exhaustion, physical and emotional. And how many people fit that description? Like, I feel like that's like 90% of the world right now as we're in October of 2020. Kelly is also a Black woman podcaster. And I asked her to tell us more about her podcast. I have a podcast called The Burn Bright Podcast. And it's all about helping high achieving what I call selfless professionals. So the thing is, is like burnout is real. Everybody has it. Everyone is experiencing it, particularly if you are a high achiever and you are particularly selfless because those are the people who get burnout the most. And I also believe that it's also people who may suffer from imposter syndrome, which happens predominantly to women and people of color. And you put those together, black women, we are prone to that. So I have a podcast that kind of teaches you tips on how to keep yourself vibrant professionally. I also have a group called Brandishing Burnout for the Selfless Professional, where I also talk about tips and it's kind of like a support and resource group for people who also identify 
uh, as that selfless professional. So that is something that I have the, the podcast weekly where you can get tips from me where I try to kind of keep you grounded and give you what you need to get through each week, not burning out, but you know, burning bright, hence the title of the Burn Bright podcast. I asked Kelly to talk about her business, the services that she offers, and her upcoming summit, the Successful Black Women Summit. My business is called Burn Bright, and the website is letsburnbright.com. And there I do burnout groups. I have a protocol that I work through. I'm clinically certified to treat burnout. The good news is you can treat and prevent burnout in like six weeks, even some of the worst cases. So it's very treatable. And I work in groups to do that. And I also do workshops for co corporate spaces and companies on wellness and burnout. But I'm really excited about the summit that I am hosting and have put together called the Successful Black Woman Summit. It's the first of its kind and the theme is release the hustle, embrace the happy. It's all about creating spaces to redefine success along the lines of wellness and self-care, both physical wellness, mental health, and mindset wellness, and also professional development and business and entrepreneurial wellness. And it's a free virtual summit. It has 24 speakers. It's being held on October 17th. It's all day on a Saturday, and it's across three different tracks. So you can choose back and forth between this kind of health for, for um, success track, this mindset for success track, and this kind of foundations for success track, which is all about entrepreneurial and nine to five business success track. Um, so you can wander between those. We have so many amazing speakers. Christine, you are one of them teaching us all the things that we need to know to expand those definitions of success, whether it be about self-care, whether it be about how you can achieve wellness by living abroad, whether it be about how people have pivoted during COVID and have went from coaching to product-based businesses or how to do brand design. We have someone who's created a multi-faceted global multimedia company for NBC and Coca-Cola, how she did that all in one day completely free. You can wander in and out virtually and you can register for that at sbws.haysummit.com. I asked Kelly to give some advice for some of you who are listening, who are social workers or maybe have friends who are social workers who are interested in moving abroad within your career. What I like about my story is that I did not go to a fancy college. I'm not knocking people who did like kudos to you. I did not grow up upper middle class. Fabulous if you did. This, it is in your reach. Social work is not a fancy, smancy, high paying job, but you can go abroad as a social worker. You just need to find contracts, particularly if you connect to the Department of State, the military, the military, the Department of State are two easy ways to get overseas on contracts connected to them. And it's easier than even going with the government. And it's less rules attached to it. It's less competition. And it'll get you over there easier. And then if you want to transfer to the government while you're there, you can. It's much easier. The other thing that's easy to do is the Peace Corps is usually easy to get through as a civilian attached to them. That's what I recommend doing. And there's a couple of companies. You just Google overseas social work. They will connect you overseas psychology 
any of those things. And it makes it really accessible to people who think that that's out of reach for people who don't already have a, a kind of fancy high paying job. I asked Kelly, where does she see herself in the foreseeable future? In the foreseeable future, I mean, one of the things that I knew is that I have to come back, but I don't have to stay back. As soon as it's possible, I would really like to be back part-time living in the States and part-time living in Europe and England. So in the foreseeable future, maybe for now, because 2020 is kind of a train wreck, I will be here in DC. But then I see myself for 2021 living part-time in England and part-time in the States. So that's where I see myself in the foreseeable future until I can transition back full-time to living in England. I asked Kelly to describe to me her definition of wellness and how her experience living abroad and repatriating back to the United States had affected her idea, her concept, and her practice of wellness. I think wellness for me is having the space to explore and define who you are and practice who that is every day. And so what living in Europe did for me is it helped me to explore and define like who I am as Kelly. And then it allowed me to be that person every day. And so now that I'm back in the States, <laughs> I'm really lucky I had that time <laughs> because now it's about me remembering who that person is and finding the time to practice and be myself as much as I can often. And so when I practice wellness, even if it's like a bubble bath or it's journaling or it's meditation or whatever that is, it's all about me making space in my mind to remember like what's important to me, what brings me joy, what are my goals, what I can do for others that bring me happiness. It helps me remember who I am. And, and that is like to me the key and the pinnacle of wellness. Thank you so much, Kelly. This has been such an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing. And if you all want to keep up with Kelly, you can via social media. You guys can all find me on Instagram, which is like my favorite little place and corner of the internet at Let's Burn Bright. Thank you all so much for listening this week. I appreciate y'all. I hope to see all of you at the next live Q&A this Sunday with Adma. And if you're not signed up for the Flourish in the Foreign Community, make sure you sign up so I can send you all the event details for this Sunday. I wanted to also remind you that I am a business strategist who specifically works with Black women and women of color, helping them to leverage their talents and their expertise into viable and sustainable online businesses so that they can pursue thriving lives abroad. If this is something that is interesting to you, perhaps you are kind of frustrated trying to figure out how you're going to go abroad and financially sustain yourself while being financially abundant and professionally fulfilled, please be sure to drop by my website, www.christinejobe.com and see how we can possibly work together and help you on your journey to thrive abroad. If you identify as a woman of color podcaster, I want to bring your attention to the WOC Insiders Podcasters Membership. It is a membership that I am, in fact, a member of, and it has really helped me level up my podcasting game. 
If you decide to join the WOC Insiders podcasting membership, please do so through the Flourish in the Foreign affiliate link, which is, again, in our show notes, in the bio, across all social media channels, and, of course, the website. Please do so with the affiliate link because it is at no extra cost to you, but is another way for you to support this podcast. Another event I think would be so great for some of you who are really interested and really eager to go abroad is the Moving Abroad Summit. Yes, there is a Moving Abroad Summit. And it is a virtual event that showcases 20 plus everyday people and families that decided to move away from their home country. They have navigated through visa processes, found employment or retired, purchased real estate and started new businesses. Attend this free event to learn tips and gain resources that helped each of the speakers create meaningful and rewarding lives abroad. You'll learn what they wish they'd known before moving and how to prepare for the talk with friends and family. The panelists will also reveal steps you should take during your first month in a new country, as well as how to search for community, employment, and housing. Learn from the personal experiences of others to get a better understanding about what to do when things go wrong. And trust me, things always go wrong. And seize the opportunity to ask questions that will help you strategically craft your own destiny. I am also a featured speaker at this event, and I will be speaking on day three about how to take your expertise online and abroad. If you guys haven't heard my episode of this podcast, check it out and you will get a little taste of how I leverage my experience and my talents and my expertise into staying abroad and thriving abroad. If you're interested in attending this event, and I think you all should attend this event, please register for this free event via my link in the, in the show notes of this episode and in the link in the bios across all social media channels for this show, and also, of course, via the website. I hope to see you all there. It's October 20th through the 22nd, and it's a live summit. Yes, it's a live summit, so I will be there live, and it'll be really, really fun. All right, now, done with all the suspense, I do have something special for all of you listeners, especially because this past episode really resonated with so many of you. You were like, I love the show, but I particularly loved learning how to manage my finances to go abroad. Well, I have some news for you. There is a bonus episode of Lisa. Yes. So if you would like to listen to this bonus episode, which is usually reserved exclusively for our Patreon supporters, I'm actually going to make it available for the entire audience. You heard right. For the entire audience, I'm going to be dropping that link soon, but you have to make sure that you are following us on Instagram. If you follow us on Instagram and across socials, you will see when I drop the link, you will have access to that bonus episode for a limited time, but you have to be following Flourish in the Foreign on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Make sure you're following so that you don't miss it because I'm going to finish editing it right after this. And I'm going to be dropping that bonus episode of Lisa chatting more in-depthly about how to manage your finances abroad because let's face it, you have to have those finances abroad 
tight in order to thrive abroad. It is actually a very meaty bonus episode. It's not some rink-a-dink 10-minute bonus episode. It is, I think, about 30 more minutes. So if you really loved Lisa's episode last week and you want to learn even more about managing your finances abroad, be sure to be following us on Instagram or on social media so that when I drop the link to the bonus episode, you can listen to it. As always, thank you to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this podcast. Zachary is just an amazing artist and producer. If you need music for your next project, your podcast, your YouTube channel, he is definitely your guy. I will leave all of his information in the show notes as well. All right, that is it for this week. See you next week. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. It's really hard in Black America where you work hard and then you keep seeing blatant displays of people not caring about a Black life. And I don't know how many times you can see that and and still be okay. Here you are working and you still got to be on the Zoom or write the proposal and know that some Black person just got murdered for just being black and then people acting like no that doesn't happen (laughs) and that creates a level of trauma and it it was creating trauma for me I just remember crying like like for a week straight like shit I'm tired you know